time, Psalm 22, 22nd Psalm, please. I have another text of mine for tonight, and then next Lord's Day, I'm, unless my mind changes, I, I am, this is the last uh, text of Messiah for, for this year. I think that puts us about halfway through, so um, it'll be another number of years before we get through all of it. Hope you've, you've listened to Handel's Messiah by now. The line did go through my mind just there. If you haven't, shame on you. It might be a little bit harsh, but uh, I've been encouraging you at least to be aware of it. You don't have to love it as much as others love it, and you may not see the value in it the same way many others do, but uh, <clears throat> it does improve on repeated hearing, and as I say, if you get the text in front of you, and that's part of what will happen next Lord's Day at the Sunday School, considering the text and the music together. So Psalm 22, I dealt with this psalm, I think it was actually, if I'm remembering correctly, I think it was Easter, I dealt with Psalm 22 in the entirety of the psalm, so we'll read all of it, we'll take time to read all of it, but the focus of our attention is verses 7 and 8, but let us hear the word of the Lord, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? O my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season, and I'm not silent. But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee, they trusted Thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee and were delivered. They trusted in thee and were not confounded. But I am a worm and a no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying, He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him seeing he delighted in him. But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breasts. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, but there is none to help. Many bulls have compassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. They gaped upon me with their mouths, as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws, and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. 
I may tell all my bones. They look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. But be not thou far from me, O Lord. O my strength, haste thee to help me. Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth. For thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorns. I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. Ye that fear the Lord, praise him. All ye the seed of Jacob, glorify him. And fear him, all ye the seed of Israel. For he hath not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Neither hath he hid his face from him. But when he cried unto him, he heard. My praise shall be of thee in the great congregation. I will pay my vows before them that fear him. The meek shall eat and be satisfied. They shall praise the Lord that seek him. Your heart shall live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord. And all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he is the governor among the nations. All they that be fat upon earth shall eat and worship. All they that go down to the dust shall bow before him, and none can keep alive his own soul. A seed shall serve him. It shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. They shall come and shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born, that he hath done this. Amen. May the Lord bless the public reading of his word. As we said at the time we were looking at this, that there is that declaration really contained at the end of verse 31. It is finished. It is finished. And this is the victory of the people of God. Let us pray. Our gracious God, how thankful we are for thy word. And as we consider it in the appointed means of preaching, we pray that thou wilt add to the blessing we've already received by causing our minds to dwell upon truth to our edification. We ask, therefore, O God, that thou wilt give the aid that we need, the Holy Spirit. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, their foolishness unto him. But how we pray that there would be the work of the Spirit in every believing heart. And should there be those yet unbelieving, that they may be quickened, that they be made alive, that they would come to know Christ. So save, revive, restore, come, make thyself known through thy word. Extend thy kingdom in all our hearts. Give us confidence in Thee, our God, because we have Christ. Yes, we have Him who loved us and gave Himself for us. So come, bless His Spirit, in these moments. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the concerns of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, for His apostles, which ultimately then became a concern for the apostles, for the early Christians, was 
a sense of the need to prepare people for the rejection that we experience in the world, the mockery of an unbelieving people. Our Lord Jesus taught those there on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. He is preparing them, preparing them to know that when they are reviled, when they are persecuted, when they have falsehoods pronounced against them, that they need not feel any sense of real shame or be totally overthrown by this kind of language and treatment, but on the contrary, they can rejoice. It is a mark, it's not the only mark, and it's not something that should be taken in isolation, but it is a mark that shows they truly belong to the Lord and they have reward in heaven. Again, speaking to his disciples, to the eleven, in John 15, our Lord Jesus instructs them, if you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Well, and we saw that on display this past week. Those who were in New York for the conference saw it in person. The rest of us saw some video footage of it just underlining the reality of what the Lord teaches His disciples. And as I say, the apostles then became concerned that the early believers would also get this, that they would understand this as well and not be completely overthrown or in any way uh, derailed from their profession of faith by a surprise. The world isn't in support of your allegiance to Jesus Christ. So the apostles manifest the fact that they understood this in their own lives. In Acts 5, 41, they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for His name. So they're putting it into practice. The apostles are recognizing that this very scenario was what the Lord Jesus warned us and told us about. Therefore, let us rejoice. We've been counted worthy to suffer shame for His name. And Peter then begins to instruct us. He teaches us. This, this is something that is, is really fundamental. It, it's, it's one of those, here, here's the, the beginnings of what you need to know about the Christian life. The world's not going to be for you. And Peter in 1 Peter 4, 14, If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the Spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. Our text this morning, as I've said, is Psalm 22, verses 7 and 8. And as I mentioned, I've, I've covered the whole psalm before within the last uh, year. And if you wish to look at the entirety of the psalm, and it's very encouraging, I'd encourage you to, to go and, and even listen to the recording or make a study of it yourself. But, but in Handel's Messiah, you, you, you find these two verses coming forth in what, at least to me, is a very powerful expression of the text. The, the, the tenor text, verse 7, and there's, there's careful, even in how it is, is done, is quite careful because the pronouns change. 
it would seem, I, I, I'm, I haven't studied this, so I'm assuming either the, the, the ones writing the text or, or Handel saw it himself, I'm not sure exactly, but uh, there's a recognition we don't want to convey that the performer is taking the place of the Messiah. And so the pronouns change. All they that see him laugh him to scorn is how it is sung. Just to recognize that it's pointing away from themselves toward the Lord Jesus himself. And then verse 8, you have the choir come in. You have all these overlapping voices. They're all they, as if you have the crowd as if you have the multiple voices that come in and mock the Lord Jesus. He trusted in the Lord that he would deliver him, let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. And it has some of this, at least as I am, I'm not a musician, but I, I can communicate how I feel that parts of it sense the kind of harrowing nature of what is going on, as if there's this, this, this real anger and resentment. And then on the other side, there are times where it sounds more, more trite, more flippant, like just this light mockery in the way that they're saying it, and that perhaps encapsulates the, the spectrum of how the various individuals entering into the mockery of Christ in a public fashion said these kinds of things. He trusted in the Lord that He would deliver him, let him deliver him, seeing He delighted in him. Well, when it comes to the end, all the voices of the choir all unite in unison you have the singular expression of the text as if the world is thinking the same way. They have a unified expression of mockery toward the Son of God. I've titled the text or, or sermon this morning, Christ's Testimony of His Public Ridicule. Christ's Testimony of His Public Ridicule. And by titling it that way, I am taking the messianic sense of the psalm, obviously, that here we have the Lord Jesus, and we know verse 1 gets quoted on the cross. We know the context of that is playing through his mind. This language is upon his heart, and some have argued that there's good reason to believe perhaps the entirety of the psalm, or at least the first half of the psalm, gets expressed, maybe quoted by Christ on the cross. We don't know. Certainly, even by mentioning verse 1, he moves everyone that hear that to think upon this psalm and its application to his present context upon the cross at Calvary. We consider language like this at this time of the year, you look at that infant born, you consider this one who comes into the world, that this, this brings us to the crux of, of where it was all leading to. It is a wonder, it is a wonder that you have in the birth of Christ and in the record given of the birth of Christ, you have this, this worship, this expression of praise and acceptance from the shepherds and, and those who came and, and gave an expression of allegiance, an expression of trust in who he was, Simeon and Anna and so on as well added to that. And then later, of course, the, the Magi coming to, to give their, their worship and render their trust in him as well. All of this, this focus shows something of, of the fact that it was not to be a visit to the world in vain, but it's still, it's still mingled with hatred. You still have the Magi coming and, of course, following the star and, and getting as far as Jerusalem and then having the question, well, well, we're here to see the Messiah. Where can we find him? Where should he be born? And, of course, the religious leaders are able to say, well, he's, he's to be born in Bethlehem. 
but they don't follow, they don't go, they don't indicate any desire to worship. Contrary, immediately the sense of threat rises up in Herod, and he manifests the ugly nature of his character and the death of the boys, all showing the hatred that the world has for the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that doesn't diminish, and only intensifies as the Son of God makes his way to the cross. So as we look at this text, there's just two primary points I want us to consider. First, what Christ saw, and then what Christ heard. Because if we take the messianic sense of it, that he is declaring this language that we put him in the place of the record rather than just David, we see what he is saying. For first, what he saw, verse 11, all they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head. That's what he sees. That's what he sees. But then what he hears, they're saying, he trusted in the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. It's very simply broken down into what our Savior saw and what he heard. So what did he see? What do we see in verse 7? Well, before we consider just the context of the cross itself, we want to see that the ridicule of the cross was not in isolation. The ridicule of the cross was not in isolation. What Christ saw there and what this text expresses happens at Calvary, as we'll see in just a moment, but it's not isolated to that experience. It's not like it was all left to that moment in time. We know, first of all, we might say leading up to the cross, that before the Jews, there was mockery. Before the Jews, there was mockery. Look, 22:63. the man that held Jesus mocked him and smote him. So we've looked at some of these verses in previous weeks, but just coming back and seeing the mockery side of this, that the Jews, there standing before Caiaphas, and in that, that environment, that there was mockery from the Jews. Those that held Jesus mocked him. Also before Herod, there was mockery. Remember then when he was taken by the Jews to go to Pilate. Pilate hears that he's of Herod's jurisdiction as a Galilean. He sends him to Herod, who just happened to be in Jerusalem at that time. And so Luke 23, verse 11, Herod, with his men of war, set him at naught and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him again to Pilate. Not getting what he wanted from the Lord Jesus, there is this mockery. They set him at naught, like made nothing of him. Then they mock him. So this happens before Herod as well. And then before Pilate, we have this mockery. Matthew 27, verse 29, when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and read in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. So the ridicule that happens at the cross is not in isolation all that is going on. In fact, and we could go to other passages. We could go to times through the ministry of the Lord Jesus where there's forms of ridicule that are expressed, though not as explicit. But definitely in leading up to the cross, there's just this, this constant barrage of ridicule that's coming to Christ. It doesn't matter who he's before. It doesn't matter what the context. It doesn't matter what connections the individuals have or or how they are perceiving it, looking at it through a Jewish lens as a Jewish religious leader, looking at it through the lens of Herod who isn't so religious as such, 
and looking at it sort of just politically within the context of Israel or through the lens of, of Pilate and those with him, through Roman lens. It, it didn't matter. It didn't matter. There was mockery. You, you, you see the nature of man. Should we be surprised then, beloved? Should we be surprised that we live in this world and you express your faith in Christ you endeavor to be, show your allegiance to the Lord Jesus and that various individuals from various backgrounds show mockery of your stand and love for Christ. Do we not see in the gamut of this that whether they were brought up in the church or not brought up in the church, whether they are blue-collar workers or the highest academics, don't we see that it's not about them in terms of how they're distinguished by nationality, by job, by anything else, that's, that's, it doesn't matter. They will mock. They will mock. Before the Lord Jesus, the ridicule is seen over and over and over again. The ridicule of the cross was not an isolation but then also note, the ridicule of the cross was not from a singular source. It's not from a singular source. Go to Matthew 27. Matthew 27, verse, we'll pick up at verse 39. In a few short verses, what you're going to see is this expression of mockery and ridicule coming from various individuals. They're not. They have no particular allegiance to one another. It's just how they're viewing everything. It's, it's just coming from their nature and their character. So Matthew 27, 39 They that passed by, so what's happening here? These are people traveling. They're traveling. They're going through this way. This was a public thoroughfare. Deliberately, the cross, the crucifixion happens in a place. It wasn't taken to a field where, where no one would see, where it was out of the way. They deliberately crucified the criminals in a place that was a thoroughfare where people passed by. So there are people who are journeying. They're going from A to B. They're making a journey. They pass by. They revile him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself if thou be the Son of God. Come down from the cross. Likewise also, you see how the Spirit is pulling these different characters together. Likewise also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders said, he saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. The thieves also, which were crucified with him, cast the same in his teeth, 
So you have the priests, the scribes, the elders, the passers-by, and the other malefactors, all reviling, all ridiculing, all mocking Christ. It's quite a thing. What is Christ's observation? Psalm 22. All they that see me. All. All. Everyone. Of course, there were those who, like the woman, were there and they believed on him and they're not included in this. But the sense is that the world, the world that has not been touched by the gospel, has not received a true understanding of who Jesus is, rejects and refuses to believe all. The people who have no sense of the amazing act of love that is going on in this. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They laugh me to scorn. It's just derision. It's just mockery. They shoot out the lip. Sense as they sneer. It's to smile or laugh with facial contortions that express scorn or contempt. That's, that's what they're doing. And then he says they shake the head. An expression of, of, of their... Recognition from their perspective of the wickedness of his character, of the Jew, of what's happening to him. Like, they're not questioning this at all. They accept and support the sentence pronounced on him. He is perceived as a criminal. They shake their head. All this is a form of derision, of mockery, of reviling, of reproach. So again, I say to you, beloved, do not be surprised when you look on an unbelieving world and this is the kind of expression that comes your way, why is it that we're so sensitive? And how come we will live our lives trying to mitigate this by our best efforts? We, <laughs> we will do everything to try and sanitize our allegiance to Christ so that we don't get this kind of response. The Lord Jesus is, is bearing this the scorn, and again, the, the scene of it, it's, it's, it's hard to describe. The Romans didn't want simply to put people to death. That wasn't enough. I mean, there, there are endless ways you can put people to death. And there are endless ways that you can put people to death and cause and inflict tremendous pain. So the Romans are not simply aiming at execution. And they're not simply aiming at execution that causes tremendous agony of body. That's included. The Romans are also aiming at the humiliation of the entire affair. This is public. This is in a place where people pass by. You can hardly miss it. If you're in the vicinity, you're going to see it. You're going to be aware of it. You're going to hear the cries, and it's all there, public show, stripped naked, left to be ridiculed and scorned, 
and to function as a deterrent to anyone else who would consider opposition against the empire. What a thing indeed. So this is what Christ saw. Does he see it here? Does he? Does he still see? Does he see in anyone here in this church? All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head. Do they see this? Does he see this in here? In you? I hope not. Not only what Christ saw, what he heard, what did he hear? Verse 8, he trusted in the Lord. And you see the language supplied at the end of verse 7. That's because we know, we know what was said and we know the context. And even looking at it, you can see the, the relationship here between what is seen and then what is stated. He trusted in the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. This is what he hears. Now, in some ways, there is comfort in this. This is where we begin. They acknowledged his trust in God. They acknowledged his trust in God. He trusted on the Lord. Just take that at face value. He trusted on the Lord. That in itself would have functioned as a comfort. No? At least they can see. There's no denying. There's no denying that our Savior expressed a life of complete trust. Think of the ways in which his trust may have been seen. First of all, his conduct generally. His conduct generally. If you saw the Lord Jesus Christ, if you, if you watched him for any length of time in his life, you would have seen this implicit trust. I am sure regularly people would have asked, where does he live? And the response would have filtered through, well, he's, he's from Nazareth. No, that's not what I'm asking. Though. Where does he live? Oh, he doesn't have anywhere to live. The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. That would have told people something of his trust. Every day, ministering, every day, pouring into others, every day, dependent upon the charity of those who could see what he's doing. His conduct generally. You see him performing his miracles. He's not doing this without any... He's not portraying anything but a complete trust in the Lord. Now, we're not given details. Often, and remember this, when you're reading the Gospels, you're getting a greatly condensed record of what went on. 
But there are enough little indications of times where you see the trust of Christ even in the performance of miracles. Remember at Lazarus, that great miracle recorded for us in John 11? You see him before Lazarus is raised. He is engaging in prayer. He is expressing, and they can see it. And he is praying audibly so that people can recognize that what is about to occur is a manifestation of one who has perfect, sinless trust in God. It's humanity in its perfect expression of perfect trust. So everything he did, the miracles performed, the way he conducted his ministry, how he moved around, his conduct generally, this is what I'm saying, his conduct generally told even his enemies he trusted in the Lord. We might also say his communication at all times. His communication at all times. Did he ever communicate mistrust? Did he? We don't have any record of it. There's no record of him communicating mistrust. Now, Gethsemane, Gethsemane is the one incident where one might see a struggle. But that's its own separate thing. And who saw it? People did not see. There was no visible expression. There was no communication. As I said, even in the context of John 11, the great miracle of raising Lazarus, there you have the, the prayerful communication of the Lord Jesus. But even as he went about and he spoke and he uttered, that there's complete trust. Everything comes back to Scripture. Everything comes back to truth. Everything comes back to honor God. In all that he uttered, and all that he said, there was no question he trusted in the Lord. And we might say not only his conduct generally, his communication at all times, but thirdly, his composure when tested. His composure when tested. There were times when our Savior was tested. I mean, if we can look at it, humanly speaking, the, the, the sense of, of testing moments that could have stressed him but we don't see a hint of that stress. So, some of us may know what it's like for a bunch of people to turn up at the house and feel like you have to feed them or provide for them or something that you weren't planning for or expecting it, and there's just a little bit of stress that, that is felt in those moments. Our Lord, seeing the need of the multitude, the 5,000 men plus women and children, in the most calm and poised manner, gives instructions. Have them all sit down in companies. There's no panic, no concern, no stress. He just exudes control. When his disciples are crossing in the ship and he's sleeping in the ship. And some of them are experienced. They know what it's like to be in the midst of a storm, and yet even they are feeling the stress of the moment. They come to wake them up. K 
carest thou not that we perish? We're on the brink of death, and you're here sleeping. And he gets up, calmly, stills the storm. Even when everyone around was stressed and distressed, no, just, just poise and composure. And you see that then leading up to the cross too, don't you? You see it? When, when he says to his disciples in Gethsemane in the garden, let us go out to meet them. I mean, he just, he's going out there facing it. And he stands before Judas and, and the probably 600 or so soldiers that are all standing there ready to arrest him. Complete composure. Peter gets a little stressed, a little itchy, a little trigger happy, let's say. And, and, and he, he's, you know, this is, a, this is a highly stressed environment. Complete composure from Christ. Led away before Caiaphas, before these great figures, these powerful men, political men, religious men, influential men, composure. Not a word is misplaced. Dragged to Pilate, composure. Under the agony of the scourging, composure. There was no denying. He trusted in the Lord. He trusted in the Lord. They all could see it. They all could see it. The question, child of God, for you and for me is, do we in any way resemble the same? What does it take to rattle us? What does it take for people to begin, perhaps rightly, to question, do you, do you even trust the Lord at all, do you? Do you? I thought you were a Christian. I thought you believed God was in control of everything. You find, just like I do, at times it does not take much at all. We look back sometimes and we're amazed at how stressed we were at what amounted to very little or perhaps wasn't even anything. We were, we were trying to figure out how to cross rivers that God never even intended us to cross. Trying to figure out how do we build a bridge here when he does, he's not even directing in that path. It's not even the direction he's taking us. We're going in a complete other direction entirely. Yet we're stressed about it. Look forward. What's going to happen here? Questioning as if all of a sudden God is going to forget about you or neglect you or not know what you need at that moment or... <laughs> I mean, you've been there. Oh, beloved, do we not see in the Lord Jesus what we are, what we are to model, what true faith in God looks like in the most stressed environments, in the most difficult scenarios that the world who can see the man who went through more stress, more regularly than perhaps anyone who ever lived. He trusted in the Lord. 
evident. I hope that's what the Lord sees in us, and I hope it's what the world can say about us. We trust. We trust. We cannot guarantee an easy path. Some of you know it. You know it very well. You're acquainted with it. You're, acqu you're acquainted with your difficulties. Let it be that what the world sees is he trusted on the Lord. But not only did they acknowledge his trust in God, they misunderstood his trust in God. That's the second way we see what Christ heard here. They misunderstood his trust in God. He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. The idea is, if he delights in him, if, it's, if, if, it's, if he really is one who God delights in, let him deliver him now. And, and if you go back, and, and you, or at least if you can remember what it was that we, we noted there, uh, what the elders and the scribes and the chief priests were saying, part of what they add there, he saved others himself, he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. They're always moving goalposts, always. It was what he had done with Lazarus, not that long prior to this, what, what happened there in John 11 was known by everyone there. They knew it. They knew it. This was a, this was a very public miracle, very close to Jerusalem. And religious leaders were there. They saw it. They knew it. They saw a man who was four days dead, raised by a word. They saw that. And they were dead scared. They were dead scared that this should get out and would, inf would infect the community because they're going to believe in him. They wouldn't believe with that. They wouldn't have believed that he came down from the cross. That's what the unbeliever does. He keeps shifting the goalposts. If God would do this, if God would do that. No. No. It's the same as the man in hell. Did the same thing, didn't he? The rich man, crying out for the intervention for his five brothers. Send Lazarus. They'll be persuaded if they see Lazarus. They knew he was dead. They know he was dead. Send him, lest they come to this place of torment. If they believe not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. If you're not prepared to anchor your trust in the promises of God, there's nothing else for you. Let that be plain. If you will not anchor your trust in the promises of God, there's nothing else for you. Nothing. The only alternative is perish. You anchor your hope in the promises of God. He saves sinners. He receives sinners. He cleanses sinners. He forgives sinners. He adopts sinners. And he takes them to be with himself. That's his word. 
Do you want something other than the promise of God? You'll go your entire life. You'll perish at the end. They misunderstood his trust. Because you see this from the language. He trusted in the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. Just a couple of things. There could be more said here, but... First, they believed his current circumstances denied God's favor. They believed his current circumstances denied God's favor. They interpreted it. This is a sign that all the evidence of divine favor is not true. Look where he is now. Look where his life of obedience has brought him. And this goes back to part of their default position. Like I, I mentioned this last week, the, the, the idea that you see expressed in John 9, you know, the man blind from birth, did this man sin or his parents? You know, wh why is this? There's, there's, they, they look at circumstances and they interpret it. Now, let, I've said this before. It needs to be stated again because this, this is a pervasive, plaguing, persistent, wicked way we think. That is reading circumstances and reading providence and imagining we know exactly what's going on and we don't. We do not. We do it about ourselves. Bad things happen. Does God even love me? He says he does. He says he does. Why are you questioning it now? But perhaps what is worse is we do it about others. We do it about others. And we see, we read what they're going through, and we begin to interpret it, and we say, oh, oh. And we start coming to conclusions. We have no business. We're like those who pass by Christ. We're doing the same thing. Oh, look at how his life is falling apart. He trusted in God that he would deliver him. Maybe he's not really a child of God. Maybe he's done some great sin. Maybe there's some insidious or other wicked kind of thing that has been going on that no one yet knows about. Maybe we'll find out someday. These kind of, they are nothing but wicked, wicked. That's what they did. They read the circumstances as denying God's favor. Instead, of understanding what Daniel's friends understood. Daniel's friends understood that hardship doesn't mean that God's against you. You remember that occasion when they stand before being charged of, of not complying, of not worshipping the golden image in Daniel 9, 17 and 18. What did they say? If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. They trusted in God that he would deliver them. But they add, But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. It doesn't matter how this falls out. We trust in God. We worship only God. Nothing will change that even if we burn up in this furnace. God is able to deliver. But even if he doesn't, we obey him. 
Now that's where the believer stands. So we can see even in hardship, God is pleased even to bring through difficulty and trial and not bring deliverance, or at least not bring immediate deliverance, yet still He is your God, you're His child. They didn't understand that. They didn't have a category for that. Just as if Daniel's friends, if they had burned up, they wouldn't have had a category. They'd say, oh, their, their God failed them. No. No. But also, not only they believed his current circumstances denied God's favor, they believed his current circumstances prevented a future deliverance. Prevented a future deliverance. They're looking at it saying, well, this is it. It's over for him now. He either delivers himself now or God delivers him now, right here at Calvary on this mountain before us all. It either happens now or it doesn't happen. So, as they look at it all, they consider a future deliverance beyond this moment is impossible. But oh, how wrong they were. <laughs> oh, how wrong they were. They could not have foreseen three days in the tomb and him rising and vacating it. They could not have seen it. And this is then the delight of the people of God. This is, this is our delight because we don't have every deliverance in this world in the way the world might anticipate deliverance. We don't. And people do get martyred for their faith in Christ. People are afflicted with disease and sickness, and people go through horrendous things. They do. And the Lord is equally in control there and then. He is. What is our hope? Well, it's what Peter expressed on the day of Pentecost, that which could not be applied to the penman, David, in the Psalm 16, when he quotes it in Acts 2. I'll read from verse 29. Men and brethren, let me speak freely unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet... Knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Messiah to sit on his throne, he, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, spake of the resurrection of Messiah, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. He trusted in God that he would deliver him let him deliver him. And he did. He did. It wasn't there at Calvary. It wasn't there according to the confines of the peculiar expectations of those standing mocking that day. It was in a completely different way. It was far more glorious, far more impressive. Oh, if he had come down from the cross, there could be all sorts of reasons that could have been given for that. Scientific reasons, medical reasons. How is it that he managed to get down from the cross? We can, we can excuse that all day long. And if he had come down from the cross, we will believe him. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. But let's go one better. What, what if he dies and is buried and the third day he rises from the grave? Will you believe it then? <laughs> and so this, this is our joy. This is, this is our hope, child of God, that in Emmanuel, 
the one who was mocked, the one who was despised. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head. He experienced things similar to what you experience for your allegiance to Christ. And he was found in a particular scenario where the world might look on and say, I thought you were a Christian. Why would God allow you to be afflicted with cancer? Why would God permit you to go through this other disease and this other thing? Why, why, why would he allow that? And maybe they might allow it to come into their head. This is a reason why I'm not a Christian because, because if, if this happens to Christians, why would I become a Christian? Whereas if we portrayed that everything goes well, that every Christian's wealthy and every Christian has the best possible health and lives to over 100 years of age, and all their families are perfect, and everything goes according to plan, and every storm manages to circumvent them. Well, if that's the way it is, then the world might look on and say, this, this, this looks great. Maybe. But God appoints difficulty. God has hardship for His people, and they go through equal, sometimes even worse, than anyone around them goes through. But there is a deliverance. There is a deliverance. Because the faith of the child of God is not limited to the experience here and now. The faith of the child of God is ultimate. Ultimate in the understanding that that child born in Bethlehem was born to die, to defeat death, and give life eternal. So that he could say, standing outside the tomb of Lazarus, like, I am the resurrection and the life. And call people, he that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Oh, what truth this is. Some of you may be mocked by family. You may be afraid to see certain family members this time of the year because of their mockery. Be not discouraged. Your Savior trod this path, and He is yours. People will mock at your faith. They mock at the thought of divine intervention. They mock when we face trials. But let me say it this way. See that word that's used in verse 7, Psalm 22? All they that see me laugh me to scorn. That's the same word you find in Psalm 2. Only on that occasion, it's not the world laughing. It's the Lord He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. And that will be the end of it. Born a king. Praise God, if the Spirit has given you eyes to see it, let us worship him. Let's bow together in prayer. Marvel not at your trials. The sufferings of Christ may abound in you. 
but your hope, if anchored in Christ, is secure. And there's something, there's something to thinking of the fact that there is a fellowship of his sufferings. Though the head be gone to the right hand of God, the body on this earth still is crucified through various afflictions and hardships. Yet praise God that because He lives, we shall live also. Gracious God, bless Thy people and grant us the desire of our hearts. Each one here wants, longs for, prays for family yet unbelieving to bow the knee to Christ, to have done with their mockery, to have done with their scorn and ridicule, so we pray for their conversion. Thank you that those around the cross, among them there were those that were converted. There was a thief who began to see differently and believed. There was a Roman centurion. Truly this was the Son of God. And there were no doubt others, religious leaders that later at Pentecost and beyond who also bowed the knee. We thank you for your mercy to the undeserving. May we extend the gospel to all the undeserving, knowing ourselves to be just as undeserving as they. So gather people in tonight. Have mercy on the souls of men and women and children. And grant that you will empower us, even through our trials, to convey clearly he trusted in the Lord. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit, be with all the people of God now and evermore. Amen.